Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMA L O T N. This week, we're going over Bellator 293, which is headlined by a somewhat meh heavyweight fight between Marcelo Gome and Daniel James but there are a couple other very interesting fights sprinkled out throughout the card that makes this card worthwhile now at the beginning of the week there was about 17 fights scheduled for this card one of them has dropped off so now we're down to 16 usually there are a couple more that usually drop off on weigh-in day so hopefully we still get about 13 to 14 fights to go through so I didn't waste my time you know researching 16 fights for you guys before we get on into it obviously i like to go over the uh predictions of the prior week and we had five total events that i was covering it was obviously ufc uh san antonio where the lock of the night prediction came through with holly Holm. a lot of people were skeptical about the fact that she's 41 years old and how is she going to go out there and still continue to perform at a high level luckily she was going up against a yana santos who is just not on her level no no matter holly Holm was at 40 years old 30 years old 35 years old it wasn't going to make a difference holly Holm was still going to go out there and beat her in terms of the regional shows, we went 2-2 two and two on Lock of the Night uh, predictions. Uh, that's from Cage Warriors, LFA, PFL, and uh, Fury FC. That brings our Lock of the Night prediction uh, record now to 28-6 and six on the year for 82% hit rate, which is still not too shabby. Uh, for the Dog of the Night predictions, the UFC San Antonio one came through with Lucas Alexander going out there and pitching pretty much a perfect game against... Uh, Steven Peterson showcased that he was a superior striker, way more lethal with his strikes, and obviously uh, a very big speed advantage, which helped him out a lot in that fight as well. Very surprised that he was the underdog in that matchup, but I think a lot of it had to do with the recency bias, considering that Lucas Alexander got quickly finished by Joe Anderson Brito in a fight that he took on short notice uh, against uh, Joe Anderson Brito, like I said. So we have to take advantage of those opportunities that we get, and that's exactly what we did in terms of the regional shows we went three and one on dog of the night predictions and we had some pretty good underdogs there in cornelia home on the pfl not to mention it wasn't an official dog of the night prediction but a plus 310 on abdella um erami er, 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 i can't recall the guy's name but plus 310 it was a light heavyweight matchup everybody was writing the guy off because his opponent had all these crazy f- quick finishes and i think it was the lack of tape available on abdella that people were um fading him because of and that's not the reason you should be fading somebody you got to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're willing to go in there and scrap and luckily from the tape i was able to find on abdullah it was enough to make me believe that he was worth a shot at plus 310 obviously the under was probably the best way to go guaranteed violence in that matchup but we were happy to hit that plus 310 as well that brings our dog of the night record or dog of the night prediction record for the year to 18 and 16 obviously not going to be as good as the lock of the night prediction record but if we can continue to hit a good majority of these dog of the night plays still gonna end out on end up on top considering the underdog money that you get on them before getting into the bellator breakdowns i want to quickly plug a couple of things the first of which is the newest addition that i have to my lock of the night venture and that is the uh, youtube membership feature and the big thing that i have going on for it is going to be the early odds analysis videos that i'm going to be dropping every tuesday of fight week now this video will be going over the following week's ufc event from a pre-tape perspective so this past Tuesday, I dropped my uh, thoughts and, and brief predictions for UFC 287. 
So if you want to check that out, it'll be linked in the top comment, the pinned comment below. Just click that link and you'll have access to the, the video. Obviously, it comes with the YouTube membership. Something else that we'll be releasing with the YouTube membership is a members only live stream, which I'll be starting once we get a good group of guys together first so that I can decide what time is best to do that weekly live stream so that everybody can take uh, part and participate in as well. But as of right now, the main thing that's going to be on there is the early odds analysis. So again, it will always be for the following week's UFC event. So for example, next week during UFC 287 fight week on the Tuesday, I'll be dropping an early odds analysis for UFC Kansas City, which goes down April 15th. So nice and early, like there is no uh, exaggerating on the early part of the early odds analysis in the title. So make sure you guys check that out. And then obviously, uh, we don't just have Bellator this weekend. We have PFL and two CFFC events. I won't be making videos for those other three cards, but you can find the best predictions for all of those fights, every single fight on those three cards on the Patreon. Link in the description below. A ton of happy customers on there because they, not, they don't just get the UFC and Bellator. They get those major regional promotions as well which seems to be every single week and i'm breaking down 20 30 40 fights a week it seems at this point but i'm enjoying it and it seems like everybody on the patreon as well again check the link in the description below uh, and then for the youtube membership as well you can hit the join button just right below the video and you guys can get access to that early odds analysis for ufc 287 gotta say there's a four particular underdogs that i feel really good about and you'll see which ones i'm talking about if you check out that video. All right, let's stop, you know, plugging these things. I know you guys hate that part of the show, but I got to do it. I got to do it. And I truly appreciate everybody that goes the extra mile to try to support your boy in those avenues. All right, let's get into these Bellator 293 breakdowns. The first of which is going to be between Maria Henderson. Yes, Benson Henderson's wife. This fight takes place in the strawweight division. She's going up against the pro debutante Mackenzie Stiller. Now, this is a fight where I thought that we were going to get a layup for Maria Henderson to notch her. I believe it's going to be her third professional victory. Um, the LFA and Bellator have been doing a very good thing for her in terms of allowing her to have amateur matchups on cards that are normally filled out with pro fights. And uh, obviously, it probably has to do with the fact that she's connected with Benson Henderson, but she's batted pretty cleanly over the last four to five fights where she's gone undefeated. She's a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Her striking is not too bad. It's obviously developing still. She's very early in her MMA career as she only had her first amateur fight back in 2021. Her wrestling is very good as well where she's able to get opponents to the ground and utilize her superior jiu-jitsu to get the positions that she needs to end up getting a finish or grinding her opponents out to get that decision victory as well. Her opponent this weekend, not a complete layup. You know, I mean, you see it in the odds, minus 170 for Maria Henderson. Again, you would think that Bellator would want to give her a layup, but that's not the case. Mackenzie Stiller, black belt in judo, purple belt in jiu-jitsu, and has a wrestling background. Her striking is god-awful, though. <laughs> it's not good. You know, she's constantly stumbling over herself, really off balance when she's throwing her strikes. So that's where Maria will have an advantage. But I think that Maria will still have an advantage in the actual wrestling aspect of this, even with Mackenzie Stiller's wrestling background, and that will allow the BJJ brown belt to have the superior positions on the ground and get the positions she needs to get the win here. But at minus 170, I'm not too privy on taking a shot on Maria, who's still relatively green in her MMA career. And again, maybe the grappling chops of Mackenzie Stiller is enough to, for her to get the fight into her realm. 
I mean, I, I don't think that she'll be super safe on top, even if she looks to get this fight to the ground. And that's what it seems like she does in every single one of her matchups that I've seen on tape. She wants to get her opponents to the ground. She wants to look for a submission. And she's managed to finish all four of her amateur fights in the first round as well. So not an easy as a matchup, like I said, for Maria Henderson in this uh, Bellator fight. But I still think she get, ends up getting her hand raised by decision. Not a whole lot of confidence in it, though. Next up, we are going to be talking about Bryce Meredith going up against Brandon Carrillo in terms uh, of odds. You'd obviously expect heavy chalk on the Meredith side, who is a standout collegiate wrestler. He's 3-0 right now in his career. Uh, all three of those wins coming in LFA, and this is going to be his Bellator debut this weekend. And uh, he trains out of the MMA lab, just as uh, Maria Henderson does as well in the fight before this. He is a very strong wrestler, as you would assume, and we've seen some decent striking from him, although in his first fight, he actually ended up getting dropped by his opponent because he got a little bit too comfortable thinking he was indestructible, but luckily he was able to get his wits back about him and eventually pull off the reversal and get the finish in the same round. In his next fight, he went up against a 47-year-old Jay Viola in a fight that, you know, you would expect him to go out there and starch a guy that's 47 years old, but Viola, way too tough for his own good, managed to last about 11 to 12 minutes into that matchup before the referee said, let's put a stop to this. There's no reason for him to continuously go out there and take a beating. Bryce uh, has shown off good cardio, good pace, good relentlessness as well in terms of just continuously pushing the pressure on his opponent, and his cardio seems to hold up, although, you know, he hasn't faced the most resistance as of yet, but I think that for the first couple of fights throughout his career, we're going to see, or sorry, the first couple of fights to the beginning of his career, we'll see his cardio hold up as a lot of these opponents will likely be defeated even before they step foot in the cage, as I expect with Brandon Carrillo this weekend. Brandon only won professional fight to his record and it came against a guy that is no bueno in terms of competition. That guy currently holds a record of 0-5 and he lost his last fight to Zion Clark. If anybody remembers that name, Zion Clark, that is the guy with no lower half to his body. He even had this video come out with him uh, uh, with uh, Kamaru Usman, I think it was, or sorry, against... Uh, was it Kamaru Usman? I forgot who it was. Oh, John Jones. It was with John Jones. Where after John Jones's fight, he met him backstage and they had like a push-up contest with one another. But Zion made his professional MMA debut against this guy that Brandon Creo beat and he beat him. That's how bad of a guy that Brandon Creo fought in his lone professional MMA fight. But I'll give it to Brandon. It seems like he has the basics of mixed martial arts down. Seems to be a decent striker. Seems to know what he's doing on the ground. But he's going to be completely blown out of the water here in Bryce Meredith. I want nothing to do with the minus 1400. I want nothing to do with the minus 400 inside the distance either, considering it took almost two and a half rounds for Bryce to get a 47-year-old out of there. We know nothing about Brandon Korea and what he actually brings to the table. What if he's actually somewhat good and pushes Bryce Meredith more than he's ever been pushed before? It's tough to tell given the lack of tape and lack of knowledge that we have on the Carrillo side. So this fight is an overall pass, but I still think that Bryce Meredith gets his hand raised by decision. Or sorry, inside the distance, but still not enough confidence on that. All right, next up, we got Randy Field going up against Ashley Cummins. Randy Field obviously trying to get her second win in the Bellator cage uh, after she picked up her first one last time around when her opponent... 
was doing pretty good in the first round. You know, she was pressuring Randy. She was able to land a takedown in the latter half of that first round and grind her out. But then she was a little bit too overzealous in the beginning of that second round, which ultimately gave up a bad position. Randy Field was able to take her back and quickly submit her after that, allowing Randy to get her hand raised for the first time in the Bellator cage. But lack of competition and legit experienced competition that Randy Field has been fighting will likely not have her prepared for the veteran that Ashley Cummins is coming into this matchup. Obviously, we saw Randy Field take her lone loss in her Bellator debut against the highly touted prospect Samika Inaba or Samiko Inaba. Uh, and in that fight, she was just completely outworked and eventually finished. Ashley Cummins, she's on a two-fight losing streak and coming off a roughly two-and-a-half-year-long layoff, but she's been fighting the highest of competition that the lower weight classes offer. You know, she's originally a 105-er, an atom weight, but in this matchup, she's going to be fighting at a 120-pound catch weight. Now, she's been out of the cage for two-and-a-half years, but it seems like she's been staying active enough in terms of her training, but she has also been focusing on one of her main business ventures, which seems to be providing self-defense uh, seminars and techniques and and procedures for law enforcement and again i might be fumbling the bag a little bit in terms of uh the exact specifications of what her job entitlement is right now but just from glancing over her ig that's what it seems to be that she's involved with which means she's still training she's still going out there and she's still rolling around and she's been posting pictures of training with those other high level women that are finding san diego home for themselves and i think that's very good for uh, ashley cummins even at this stage of her career i think that this is a great matchup for ashley cummins to come back to and make her bellator debut with again even though she's a 105er normally and she's going to be going up about 15 pounds in this matchup i think the total MMA package advantage that she has in this matchup will overcome any type of size advantage that Randy Field will have. Topology still has them both listed as five foot three, so I don't think there'll be a huge size advantage, but Randy Field is the one that's been competing at a higher weight class for the majority of her career. But Ashley Cummins, BJJ Brown Belt, she's always, uh, she always has constant forward pressure, always staying in the face of her opponents, and when she's at her best, she's able to drag them to the ground and utilize a very aggressive BJJ game. I think that this is a great matchup for her to showcase to Randy that, you know, there are levels to this game. And even though that Ashley Cummins is seven and six in her professional MMA career, all of her losses are coming against higher level women at those lower weight classes. So she has a ton of good experience. She's been fighting the best of them. She hasn't had horrible performances against those fighters, even in her losses. And I think that Randy Field will quickly find out that Ashley Cummins is, you know, a lot better than her record indicates. So I like me some Ashley Cummins here. A little bit skeptical about the layoff that she's coming off of, but I think that if she has actually been training the amount it looks like she's been training, she should still have no uh, no real uh, slip-ups in this matchup or no real re resistance in this matchup, and she should still get her hand raised. And I'm going to say via decision, although a submission is possibly on the table as well. Next up, we got a very solid matchup here between two grapplers. We got Magic Mike Hamill going up against Nick Brown. Uh, very intriguing fight here. You know, Ma Mike Hamill, um, similar to uh, Ashley Cummins, you know, 9-5 and five record. Usually a lot of people are like, ah, this guy stinks. How could you have a 9-5 and five record? But the level of competition he's been going up against is more than enough reason for you to understand why he has five losses. You know, his last two losses came to Usman Nurmagomedov, who is currently the Bellator lightweight champion, and um, uh, Adam Borix, another very high-level fighter in that Bellator lightweight division. 
the prior loss he had to that was in the LFA against uh, Bruno Souza. I think it was Bruno Souza. Yeah, that's his name. Uh, but it came via an illegal strike. You know, that was a fight that he was winning, in my opinion. But I forgot what the strike was. It was an illegal strike. The referee deemed it intentional, which ultimately got him disqualified and added another loss to his record. But he is a strong uh, strong wrestler, training out of the MMA lab. His striking game still needs a little bit of improving, but his willingness to go forward and push the pace allows his striking deficiencies to be nullified a little bit because he's always pushing the pace and staying in his opponent's face and you know pushing the pressure uh, the way that he does. Although I'm not totally sold on his ability to hold opponents down with his wrestling pressure opponents have been able to work back to their feet and dish out even more significant damage which ultimately uh, nullifies any type of grappling success that he normally has nick brown bjj black belt doesn't train out of a high level gym by any means but this guy is a tough out you know, i believe he has a 11 and 2 record or 11 and 1 record very good fighter a former lfa champion before making his jump to the bellator scene uh his last loss obviously coming to um islam mamadov very high level fighter there but he was having his own success in that matchup he even defeated top prospect mandel nalo the fight before that via a ground and pound after dropping him after with a big shot but he has solid striking he has very good wrestling as well and very good grappling. And I think that this is a matchup that he can stay very competitive with Mike Hamill in the grappling realm. But then on the feet, I think he'll be the one landing the better, more significant strikes and landing more damage that the or judges will likely end up seeing in his favor. So I do lean the Nick Brown side here as a slight underdog, not with a whole lot of confidence because I'm still wondering, like, is Mike Hamill's wrestling that much better than Nick Brown's? I don't think it is. And I think that Nick Brown's BJJ black belt will allow him to keep this fight relatively in a safe position or at least reverse position or get back to his feet so that he can get back to his handiwork, which in my opinion is better than what Mike Hamill brings to the table. Both guys, solid cardio. Like I said, I expect this fight to play out relatively close the entire time, but I think that Nick Brown is going to be the one that ultimately gets his hand raised by putting, better, putting together a better body of work. All right, next up. We got Christian Edwards going up against Rakeem Cleveland. Christian Edwards moving up a weight class here after taking two straight defeats in the light heavyweight division. And he was a solid prospect. You know, he was 5-0 going into that matchup against Ben Parrish. And then Ben Parrish knocked him out. So he takes his first loss. Then he goes on and loses his next fight to Grant Neal in a, not a close fight as Grant Neal, in my opinion, definitely won two straight rounds there with his grappling and with his top pressure and forward pressure. And Christian Edwards decided that, you know what, I need to change things up a little bit. Normally a Jackson Wink fighter in Albuquerque, New Mexico, he actually went and started training with his former foe, Grant Neal, in Colorado at Genesis Training Center. He's been splitting time between those two camps, Jackson Wink and Genesis, but it's been a good look for him to go out there and get those different looks, get that uh, a different uh, a pace, you know, get 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 some uh, different advice and, and different bodies to work with. And I'm curious to see how that's going to help him in the development of his career. He only has seven professional fights under his record, and I think that he's still at that stage where you can mold him to be a much better fighter. At his best, he's able to implement his grappling where he uses his size to bully his opponents in the clinch, eventually drag them to the ground, and then do some good work from on top. He's a decent striker, but he only chooses to strike when one, it looks like your gas tank is running on empty or his opponent's gas tank is running on empty, or two, he feels comfortable enough that he knows that he has a striking advantage over you. Now, Rakeem Cleveland, this guy is a veteran of the game, right? 35 plus uh, professional fights, 
I think this is going to be his 40th. I could be off on that. But he has a ton of experience under his belt. Fought all over the regional scene. Fought in the PFL. Fought all levels of competition. And Bellator thus far, he's 0-2 though. Getting finished in the first round of both of his fights. And I think that's uh, you know an unfortunate look. Because I think he is better than what that record indicates. At least given the amount of experience that he's been able to accrue. It's been allowing him to look, or be better than people are expecting him to be. Now he's going to have a huge experience advantage here over Christian Edwards and that could make him dangerous which is why I'm not so hot on the Christian Edwards heavy chalk in this matchup. I think Raheem Cleveland has good enough striking to potentially catch uh, Christian Edwards off guard here and maybe even land a big punch, maybe knock him down, maybe even knock him out. But I'm expecting Christian Edwards to go what to go with what got him to the dance in the first place. And that's going to be his wrestling. I think that he'll be able to have success pushing Rakeem up against the cage, eventually dragging him to the ground and grinding him out from on top. The sneaky spot that I'm looking at in this matchup is the over one and a half, which currently sits at plus money. And I think the reasoning for that is the fact that Rakeem has been finished relatively quickly in his last two matchups. But I think given the style that Edwards will likely bring into this fight so that he can finally get back into the win column, he'll be looking to grind this out and that will likely take us into the third round where um, uh, Christian might be able to get a finish, but at least we should be able to cash that over one and a half round mark plus 120, plus 130. Uh, that's, I think that's a good enough spot to take a shot. But I do think that Christian ends, Christian ends up reversing his fortune here, getting back into the win column. I just can't get behind that big minus money price tag that he currently has. Next up, we got Pam Sorensen going up against Sarah Collins. Sarah Collins, a 3-0 undefeated prospect out of Australia, training under the likes of former UFC fighter Daniel Kelly. Obviously, Daniel Kelly, high-level judo or judoka, and that's exactly what Sarah Collins brings to the table. She's a judoka in her own right, black belt there as well, but very raw and green in her game still. And I don't think that's a good look for her, especially coming into this matchup against a, a veteran like Pam Sorensen. Pam on a bit of a rough stretch as of right now, and she's gotten beaten in pretty much both aspects of mixed martial arts in her last two fights. Aline Blenka was able to outstrike her and nullify any type of takedowns that Pam was trying to engage in. And then Kat Zingano absolutely put her through the ringer with the grappling realm and her uh, wrestling, and Pam was unable to do anything in that matchup. But Pam is a decent all-around fighter, right? Just about average at everything. And she has a tremendous amount of experience throughout her women's mixed martial arts career to make her very live in this matchup to go out there and pull off the win and derail, well, there's not much of a hype train on the Sarah Collins side, let's be honest. But, you know, put a halt to the momentum that this prospect currently has. You know, Pam, again, she's not great at anything, but she's decent at everything you know she puts good forward pressure even when she's not landing a lot of shots just her forward pressure and output makes it look good enough for the judges that they'll probably score it in her favor just as she did in her lone bellator win against uh, roberto roberta samad i believe the chick's name was but that's how Sorensen wins she either keeps that pressure on you with her striking or is able to drag fights to the ground and grind you out from on top and i think she'll, she can take both of those approaches here against sarah collins I wouldn't count it out at all that Sarah Collins is able to land a judo throw on her and then just spend some time on top where Pam is unable to get up from on top. But I'm not the most impressed with Sarah's top control, nor am I impressed with her cardio. And given the amount of uh, resistance she's going to face in this matchup against the most experienced opponent she's ever gone up against, I think it's not going to work out too well for her. You know, the most experienced opponent that Sarah Collins has fought was somebody that was 2-0. 
You're talking about Pam Sorensen, who has 14, 15 fights under her belt and has fought all levels of competition in the past. So this should be a walk in the park for her. But again, she's very average of a fighter. So it wouldn't surprise me if the raw 3-0 fighter is able to get some positions, ride out some top time, and win a decision in her own right. But I'm going to go with the more experienced fighter here. I'm going to go with Pam Sorensen. I think she wins this fight, but I wish I had more confidence in it, but I just don't. Sarah Collins is very raw, but Pam Sorensen is very average. Take what you want from that breakdown, but I think Pam Sorensen wins by decision. Next up, I'm very excited about this matchup, and I think it's the funnest matchup in terms of prospects that we have on this card going up against each other. We got Lance Gibson Jr. going up against Vladimir Tokov, and you got Tokov as a 2-1 to favorite here, as you would expect from the Russian, but I think it makes sense. You know, Lance Gibson, he's been undefeated throughout his career so far, and Bellator has done a very good job in terms of slowly bringing him up through the ranks, obviously giving that, giving him that preferential treatment, being the son of Lance Gibson and being the stepson of uh, their former featherweight champion, Julia Budd, but he seems to have grown at a solid enough rate. His striking looks good, his BJJ looks great, but the weakest part of his game is the strength of Vladimir Tokov, which is the takedown defense. We've seen a number of opponents take Lance Gibson down, and luckily for him, he was one much younger and more athletic than him or than his opponents, like he was against Dominic Clark last time, where he threw up a triangle choke and got that to get his win. Or his cardio was much better than his opponent, and his striking was much better than his opponent, that he was able to ride out the first round by just laying on his back and allowing his opponent to have success. I believe the kid's name was Raymond Pena. But then in the second round, Lance started putting his punches together, Raymond started to get discouraged, and then eventually uh, Lance Gibson was able to knock him out in that second round. Vladimir Tokov is going to be much harder to, one, submit it off of your back, and two, beat him on the feet to eventually knock him out. I think Vladimir will more than likely always be able to secure takedowns in this fight. I'm a little bit skeptical in his ability to stay out of submissions, but I don't think that Lance Gibson is as active nor as aggressive off of his back as J.J. Wilson is, who was the last guy to defeat Vladimir Tokov. So I think that will see Tokov accrue a bunch of that control time on top. I think even he'll have his own success on the feet, although I'll still give the edge to Gibson on the striking realm. I still think that Tokov can land enough takedowns, land enough damage on the feet, and land enough damage on top that the judges will eventually see it in his favor. His money line is the same as the over 2.5 in this matchup, so I think even just taking the over 2.5 could be safer in case Gibson is the one getting off on better damage and still wins this fight by decision. So at least you're not getting caught by taking the Tokov money line, whereas this fight likely ends up going the distance. I think it's Tokov that gets his hand raised, but I think it's more likely that uh, this fight goes over 2.5 and cashes at minus 200 rather than going over to an half and cashing as Tokov as the minus 210 favorite because Gibson could get off on more damage and potentially get his hand raised as well. But I'm going to go with the Russian Russian, and the Canadian in me hurts uh, is hurting that I'm saying that as I'm hoping that Gibson is able to pull this one off because we really need some Canadian prospects on one of the major MMA uh, organizations. But I think that Tokov grinds this one out and wins via decision. All right, next up. We got another hot Bellator prospect on tap here. And Lucas Brennan, when he takes on Josh San Diego, Brennan 
slowly taking that rise up the Bellator ranks as you would expect from the prospects that the that Bellator likes to groom Lucas a very high level BJJ black belt very difficult to deal with especially when he's able to get his arms around your neck even if he doesn't get it under your chin he is still always working and finding a crafty way to open up that path to get that uh, neck of yours and eventually take it on home with him He's a relentless grappler who has solid wrestling and he's always able to take his opponents to the ground and rough them up, either finding a choke or the one time he's been able to take somebody to a decision and grind them out in that aspect. His father was a former MMA fighter as well, so it's great to see these guys, similar to Lance Gibson, who are coming in as the, you know, the, the, the second generation full mixed martial arts fighters and not just coming in with a specific um, uh, discipline that they're great in. Obviously, Lucas great jujitsu bjj black belt high level wrestler all that stuff and his striking still needs a little bit of work but he's done such a great job in terms of closing the distance and dragging his opponents to the ground that he always finds himself in a position where he's able to get a choke going like i don't know if his opponent this weekend is going to be ready for that but he is a very experienced guy with over 13 fights of professional experience but i just seen him struggle against other wrestlers and other grapplers that i just don't know if he can do it here against a guy like lucas brennan so i completely understand why brennan is a minus 900 favorite in this matchup i think he ends up finding this mission at a certain point here um you know you know what i'm gonna backtrack that a little bit i I do think that San Diego is experienced enough and hopefully well-trained enough that he won't give up a choke and likely should be able to see the judge's scorecard here. But I think that Lucas is just going to be too much of an overwhelming pressure here that there will be some close submission opportunities for Brennan to eventually get that tap. I'm just not sold on it. You know, I, I think Brennan wins this fight. I think he dominates. I don't know if it finishes on the table though because as we've come to find out as prospects continue to take steps up in competition finishes get harder to come by and josh san diego not anything special but still going to be a tough out for lucas brennan and it will be valuable experience for brennan to to go through and still end up getting his hand raised in this matchup next up we got the return of highly touted prospect joey davis he's going up against uh uh jeff creighton who uh a lot of people would mainly know as the guy that max roshkoff made his mma return against and he was able to quickly submit him and get him out of there uh i think it was a submission but uh that was you know the first fight back from roshkoff after he had the whole ufc debacle where he quit on the stool ended up getting released uh but he was able to come back get that win over creighton creighton a similar guy to josh san diego in the aspect that he's just a you know a journeyman amongst the regional scene he has decent experience all over the uh you know all over the fight past regional scene he even fought for an a1 combat title uh, a fight that ended up going to a draw so he didn't end up winning uh the belt um that was a fight where he got grinded out in the first two rounds and just couldn't really do much against his opponent uh and if he's getting grinded out against guys like that you bet joey davis is going to be doing the same thing to him now, Joey Davis is coming back from about a, a three-year layoff, a, a two-and-a-half, three-year layoff. Uh, not entirely sure why. You know, maybe by the time this podcast drops, we'll find out exactly why that happened, but still not uh, the most ideal of circumstances when you have a minus 1,600 coming back from an extended layoff. I don't know if it was injuries, personal problems, whatever it was, but uh, you always have to, you know, put a pin in that and wonder uh, why that was and what if it, is something that impacted his performance upon his return and he ends up fumbling the bag as such a big favorite 
which is why I'll likely say just stay away from this matchup. But I think that he is just a very skilled fighter. Like I said, a high-level wrestler. His wrestling, or sorry, his striking is coming along very well. But I think the most important part of his game that I saw throughout his, uh, his run when I was running his tape was his ability to dictate the pace. And that's because of the threat of the takedown. You know, opponents are scared that he's going to go for the takedown, which allows him to be, just be comfortable in the striking realm and pick his one-twos when he needs to and not overexert himself, which would cause eventual cardio problems. But just his ability to dictate the pace has allowed him to go out there and fight 15 minutes if he's needed to. But I expect him to go out there and still give us a great performance. I expect him to win possibly inside the distance. Creighton, nothing spectacular struggled against some mediocre competition on the regional scene may have still gotten his hand raised but still we all know that there's levels to the shit and joey davis is another level especially if he picks up where he left off so look out for joey davis to come back with an emphatic return i'd say this next matchup is the one that i'm second most looking forward to after gibson and tolkoff as we have another two undefeated highly touted prospects archie colgan going up against justin montavo now Archie Kogan, a high-level wrestler in his own right, but his striking is starting to shine through as well. He uses his explosiveness, timing, and speed to land big shots on his opponents, drop them to the mat, and finish them off with ground and pound. But when he wants to, he can use his grappling approach very effectively, taking his opponents to the ground, grinding them out, and then eventually finding that position required to get that finish as well. He's been training with high-level guys throughout his career, such as Kamaru Usman, Justin Gaethje, uh, even Hafa Garcia has been in there. But uh, he trains out of that Colorado scene where he's been getting high-level coaching and training this entire time. He's one of my favorite prospects that Bellator currently has, not just because of his wrestling, but the development in his striking game, which just makes him a much more difficult opponent for many opponent or fighters to, to deal with. And his cardio looks to be very much on point as well. He's going up against Justin Montavio, who's 5-0, training out of the Sierra Longo camp on the East Coast. And this guy shows a tremendous striking game, specifically with his body work. He's able to utilize his boxing combinations and hurt his opponents to the body over and over again, either crumpling them with a liver shot or just breaking them and rending them or just muzzling them, where his opponents just are scared to throw anything in return. My concerns comes with when he starts fighting higher levels of competition, which is what he's going to be doing this weekend. We've seen him struggle against grapple-heavy fighters in the past, but those fighters have, one, either ran out of gas, two, are just not that good, uh, and then three, they end up crumpling and he's able to take advantage and eventually finish them. I don't know if he's going to have that benefit here against Archie Colgan, who's going to stay in his face the entire time. And we've seen where uh, moments where Justin Montavio is dealing with guys that put a output heavy approach on him, a volume heavy approach. He kind of freezes up and he doesn't throw as much uh, output, which will obviously not look good in the judge's score or judge's eyes if the fight does end up re reaching the scorecards. But I know that constant pressure, the takedown threat, the big punches, the speed advantage that Archie is going to have here will more than likely have him ahead in this matchup and eventually put together a great uh, um, body of work to eventually win this fight by decision. Justin might have some success in this matchup, but I think the constant takedown pressure and that speed and that power that uh, Archie will continuously land on him will start to deter and deteriorate the, the, the motivation of Justin Montavio, which will allow Archie to just fully take over this matchup, winning this fight. I'm going to say by decision, but this could be a chaotic matchup where Justin might end up slipping up and Archie lands a big enough shot to put him out in this fight. But very, very high level matchup that I'm very much looking forward to here. 
Next up, we got Adam Piccolotti going up against Mandel Nalo. Very fun fight here, especially for the Mandel Nalo side, who's really looking to, you know, find his footing in the Bellator cage. He's had a pretty up and down career thus far uh, through his first couple of fights. But when he is on, you see the potential that everybody sees in him and why he's so highly touted uh, of a prospect. And a lot of people were thinking that he would be the next best, best thing out of Canada. But there have been a couple slip-ups that he's had throughout his career, right? The the Kilis Mota fight, which I thought he was doing pretty well in, until Kilis decided to attack that lead leg of him at the beginning of the third round, and that ended up messing up the lead leg of uh, Nalo, and that was stopped due to leg kicks. Um, very weird fight because Kilis wasn't really targeting it throughout the matchup. It just started in the third round, and that's where he was able to take advantage. And then in the next one, Mandel Nalo gets ended up getting dropped by Nick Brown and finished in that matchup. But you see him at his best when he's able to just stay at distance, pick his apart, uh, pick opponent his apart from distance, and then snipe them with that big shot and put them down. Uh, he showed it off in his last fight uh, against Bryce Logan, where he knocked him out in just over sixty seconds. He's a high-level striker who does very good in terms of maintaining his distance, using his front kick up the middle to keep his opponents at bay, and then come down with that right or that left to uh, snipe his opponents and put them down. His grappling game still needs a little bit of work, although uh, I need, I mean, defensively speaking, because he's a BJJ black belt under Faraz Ahabi, but at times he could get stuck on his back by certain opponents. But I haven't seen enough legitimate enough tape to think that that's going to be the, the bane of his existence in the Bellator cage, right? Adam Piccolotti, BJJ black belt, all of his fights pretty much taking in the grappling realm. So if Piccolotti is going to have success in this fight, it's going to be with trying to take Nalo to the ground and beat him up there. But I haven't seen enough relevant recent tape on Piccolotti in the striking realm to know that he'll be able to deal with the striking of Nalo. So I'm going to say that Nalo does a good enough job of keeping Piccolotti at bay, sniping him from distance, keeping him on the outside, and then obviously seeing the telegraph takedowns that are coming his way, getting out of the way, making him pay with the counter of his own, maybe a knee up the middle, maybe a kick, whatever it might be, maybe an uppercut. But I think that Nalo will do a good enough job in terms of controlling this fight in the striking realm and then eventually finding that finish. I think the best way of approaching this fight, though, is going to be the fight doesn't go to decision. I think both guys have finishing opportunities, whether it's Piccolotti with his threatening submission game or Nalo with his threatening striking game. I'm going to go with the Canadian here, though, as I think that Nalo is a much better overall fighter. And even though he might not have as much high-level experience as Piccolotti has, I think it's just a matter of time before Nalo continues to fight the higher level that Bellator has to offer and continue to prove himself. So I'm going to go Mandel Nalo by knockout, but fight doesn't go to decision. Probably the best way to attack this matchup. Next up, we got a solid... I believe it is a heavyweight fight light heavyweight fight sorry between a prospect undefeated prospect 5-0 prospect Sullivan Colley going up against 6-1 British prospect Luke Trainer. now Sullivan Colley training out of Arizona actually got in a couple rounds with Paulo Costa during this uh camp uh you know I wouldn't say high level wrestler because his wrestling record actually shows 8 and 15 not the greatest but he's managed to make it work for him thus far in his professional MMA career usually is successful with taking his opponents to the ground and using his high level or his dangerous ground and pound to posture up and land some big strikes to get his opponents out of there finishing all of his opponents pretty much in that first round but you have seen him slip up on the amateur scene where guys like Billy Alicana and uh, I can't recall this other fellow's name, but you see fighters that don't succumb to that early wrestling and ground and pound pressure. They're able to push fights late and they're able to have success in that realm. 
But we haven't seen anybody push Sullivan Cully in the professional ranks until this weekend. I think Luke Trainer is a good enough fighter to survive that early onslaught and then utilize his superior striking to beat up Sullivan Cully on the feet, stop the telegraph takedowns that are going to be coming his way in the second and third round, and possibly even find a finish of his own. So plus 200 on Luke Trainer, I think, is a little bit of a wide line, right? Sullivan has looked great. He's a highly touted prospect. People are just so used to seeing him going out there and wrestling his opponents to the mat and dominating them from on top. But he hasn't been fighting the best of competition. Jay Raddick, you know, sure, the guy was athletic and explosive and big, but we saw what happened as soon as Sullivan got him to the ground. Nothing. Jay Raddick could do nothing to him. But Luke Trainer, yes, he might get taken down, but I think he is a talented enough fighter at this point in his career that he could survive long enough on the ground, maybe throw up some threatening submissions, maybe eventually work back to his feet, and then on the feet, I think he's the better striker. He's longer, he's bigger, and I think his striking and power is going to come through in spades here, and as Sullivan Cully starts to uh, um, fail on takedowns, I think he's going to start to break, I think he's going to get discouraged, and I think that we'll see uh, Luke Trainer beat him up on the feet and eventually knock him out in this fight. Luke Trainer training out of GBTT, which is Great Britain top team, headed by former UFC great Brad Pickett. And I think that uh, all that high-level experience, not to mention all the other great prospects they have coming out of that gym, most notably Simeon Powell, who picked up a big win in the PFL Euro Series last week. Uh, that's going to trickle on over to Luke Trainer, given the confidence that he needs to go out there and defeat an undefeated prospect like Sullivan Cully. So... I like this underdog here. I'm going to go with Luke Trainer to pick up his first win on North American soil over the highly touted Sullivan Cully. Next up, we got a solid uh, matchup here as well between Jaleel Willis and the returning and Bellator debuting Rustam Habilov. Now, Jaleel Willis turned the tide last time around in his Bellator career after going 2-2 two two in his first four fights. Uh, his last matchup, he went out there and defeated highly touted prospect Kyle Crutchmer. He was able to stop the takedowns and beat him up on the feet with the speed, footwork, and combinations, which Kyle Crutchmore could not get a beat on at all. Kyle was shooting desperation takedowns and unable to get Jaleel Willis down, and nor was he unable to hold him down either. So it was very difficult for Kyle to get his game going, and that just showed how one-dimensional Kyle really was. But Jaleel is really starting to come in his own. Right Before coming to Bellator, he was the former LFA champion. He had a lot of hype on him as well. He, even though he lost his... Uh, two fights uh, to Mohamed Berkamov and Saba Homasi, I think that he still has a lot to showcase in the Bellator cage. If he can continue showcasing his takedown defense, something that he's going to need a lot of in this matchup against Rusam Habilov, and then showcase his hand speed, his footwork, and his cardio, he's going to be a tough out for a lot of opponents. I think him aligning himself with Kilclef FC was a great thing for his career, and I think that's starting to show in spades now, especially with the big upset that he pulled off last time. Now he comes in as the favorite against former UFC fighter and a guy that a lot had a lot of hype on him while he was in the UFC, but Rustam has started to fall off in the latter half of his career. He's been out of the cage for close to four years now. I'm not entirely sure what has been keeping him out of competition, but you got to believe now that he's trying to settle in at a higher weight class of 170 pounds, uh, starting to slow down due to his age. I think he's 36 years old now. I think it's going to get difficult for him to really assert that Dagestani wrestling style. Sure, he might be able to land a couple takedowns here against Julio Willis, but I think that Willis will quickly find his way back to his feet and eventually land that damage, accrue that damage, and really beat up Habilaba on the feet and winning this fight by decision. I like Jaleel in this spot. Again, I don't want to get too ahead of myself because we know how quickly the pendulum swings with the betting public on guys where, you know, 
They're, they're just big big underdogs in their last fight. Then they become favorites in the next fight, and then they end up fumbling the bag. But I think that Jaleel Willis has showcased a good enough overall game throughout his career to go out there and get a win over a, a somewhat of a big name amongst the diehards in Rustam Habilov. So official prediction, I'm going to go Jaleel Willis by decision. Next up, we got a passing of the torch fight, if I can call it correctly here we got former bellator title challenger john salter going up against rising prospect aaron jeffrey now aaron jeffrey has made a complete statement in his first two bellator matchups the first of which he finished fabio aguera uh, or aguiar i should say and then his next matchup absolutely destroying austin vanderford in just over a minute of of the fight before that, Aaron Jeffrey was known as a somewhat boring fighter, a guy that would uh, be a menace in the clinch. That's what I like to call like he's the, the clinch menace is what I like to call him because he does such good work in there. His awareness in the clinch and where his underhooks are, his overhooks are, what he needs to do to reverse his opponent up against the cage and just land some dirty boxing, some knees, staying active enough in that to continue to make his opponent work so that he can eventually break them later on in the matchup and possibly even finish them. His cardio is off the chain and, uh, you know, he trains out of the Southern Ontario region where I'm familiar with a couple of his training partners and I've heard nothing but great stories about this guy. You know, he did some decent work in that Kyle Bahayo fight, but it was Bahayo's damage that he was able to land in that fight with the superior striking that allowed Bahayo to win that fight. But Jeffrey was close in that fight. And then he bounced back by defending his CFFC title in the next fight and then eventually got that call up to Bellator and has looked damn good since. And now he finds himself a year later since that uh, that contender series fight or just over a year later, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, maybe a fight or two away from a title shot of his own in Bellator. He's a very good fighter. Uh, he's, you know, he's beaten guys like Andre Petrosky in the past where he showcased that his grappling defense can be very high level and then he can go out there and break and finish his opponents later on. That's exactly what I think he's going to do here against the aging John Salter. John, you know, I don't want to write him off by any means because his last two losses have become, have come in a title fight against Gegard Musasi and then in a pretty much number one contender fight against now middleweight champion John Yeblin. But I still think he's on his way out. I think he is. The age is starting to catch up with him. You know, his his early finishing style is not translating as much as it did earlier in his career. You know, this was a guy that made a living off of finishing guys early in fights so that his cardio issues could not come and, uh, you know, give him losses. But that's what's happening at this point in his career. Aaron Jeffrey is a good enough defensive grappler here to deal with that early onslaught that's going to be coming from John Salter. I think that... Jeffrey will force him to work and then he could probably finish him in the second or third round of this matchup. I think Jeffrey is probably the safest spot on this card at that minus 400 range. Again, very chalky, but I think he's one of the safer parlay pieces this weekend. I really like him in this spot. I think he's even worth the chalk straight up, if I'm being honest. I think he works John Salter here and eventually finishes him in that second or third round. Co-main event time, we got former UFC title challenger Kat Zingano looking to make it 4-0 in the Bellator cage. She's going up against Leah McCourt, who's trying to find her own footing as well. Kat Zingano, big favorite in this matchup. And both women usually fight with the same approach. They want to go out there and grapple their opponent. But unfortunately for Leah McCourt, Kat Zingano has been competing at a completely different level, having way more success against better opponents. And I just don't think that Leah McCourt is up to snuff here. We've seen Leah McCord even get reversed and outgrappled by strikers like Sinead Kavanaugh in the past. Not a good look. Now I see, I get it. Leah McCord has a win over Manoa Firo earlier in her career, but we know this version of Manoa Firo would absolutely smoke out Leah McCord without any issue. 
So I think that we'll see Zingano go to her wrestling. I think she'll be the better grappler. I think she'll be stronger in the clinch. She should be able to drag this fight to the ground and have good work from on top. And the striking, Leah McCourt might have a little bit of an advantage because she seems a little bit more comfortable with throwing her hands. However, Katzengano does a great job of staying on the outside, utilizing her kicks from distance, and then finding that proper opportunity to close the distance, change levels, drag the fight to the ground, and then have complete control from on top. Her BJJ black belt will allow her to stay safe from that top position and just grind out Leah McCourt, maybe even finding a submission at a certain point. But... I'm going to go with the safer route here. I think Zingano straight up is fine. Parlay piece, she's fine. But I think she ends up grinding this fight out and winning it by decision. And that brings us to our heavyweight main event here. Reminder that Bellator recently, or over the last year or so, has adopted five-round main events, even for non-title fights. So we might get five rounds of the sloppy heavyweight fight between Marcelo Gome and Daniel James. Daniel James splashed onto the Bellator scene with a big upset victory over Tyrell Fortune last time around where he was able to ground and pound him after landing a beautiful uppercut and a Francis Ngannou type uppercut against Tyrell Fortune and pounded him out to win via ground and pound. He's a very experienced heavyweight who has fought in all corners of the world against all levels of competition. So he was more than prepared to make his Bellator debut when he was able to get the call. I think it was his debut. I feel like he has fought in Bellator before, but return, debut, whatever it was. That fight against Tyrell Fortune, he was more than prepared for it and he showed off why. Marcelo Gome has had some decent work in the Bellator cage since hopping on over there as well, which has earned him this main event slot. He's a very solid all-around heavyweight fighter with good boxing combinations, a decent takedown game, and he moves very well for this higher level that he's been fighting at in the Bellator cage. But this is a very iffy fight. You know, I think Gome is the better overall fighter here, and I think he'll do a good enough job in terms of mixing up the grappling with the striking to outwork Daniel James and then eventually beat him inside the distance probably in rounds three or four. But Daniel James is just, you know, he's such a wild card. The man is massive. He's six foot six, always coming in at the heavyweight limit and has a ton of power. But he's going to be at a speed disadvantage, and that might be the end up uh, being the big difference maker in this fight. Very difficult fight to call. I lean on the Marcelo Gomes side ever so slightly, not with a whole lot of confidence. I think he puts together a better game plan. I think he pushes through in the latter half of this matchup, and he probably finds a finish via ground and pound in the third or fourth round, maybe even by submission. Don't count out Daniel James at all, though. I'm not saying go out there and fade Daniel James. This is a guy who, at the earlier parts of his career, even though he started MMA around 31 years old, that's when he had his first professional MMA fight. This is a guy that was mixing it up with Curtis Blades in the training room for the majority of the beginning of his career. Now, still training out of Chicago with a lesser-known gym, he might still have some good chops and some good wins in him, and he might be the dark horse or the Cinderella story of the Bellator heavyweight division, but I think as an overall perspective, overall skill set, Marcelo Gom is the better fighter here, just not a whole lot of confidence. So I'm going to say Marcelo Gom round three or round four, TKO or submission, let's just call it inside the distance. And there you guys go, the full Bellator 293 breakdown for you guys. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. A reminder, I have the early odds analysis for UFC 287. Pinned comment below. Just click there. You guys can check it out for the YouTube membership perks. Um, CFFC and PFL breakdowns are all on the Patreon. Link in the description below. A uh, ton of work this weekend, but I got you guys all covered. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'll be back on Monday for the UFC 287 MMA Lawcast episode. But like I said, if you want the early access to what my thoughts are, Patreon has you covered. That's where I drop my final predictions first before I send it out onto the public in my flagship podcast, the MMA Lawcast. 
Yeah. All right. Let me stop plugging myself. I just, I just love doing it. I appreciate it. Hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. And I'll see you guys on Monday. Good luck with all your action this week. Peace. Last thing.